Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of having as a guest Dr. Bradley Ferris, another recipient of the Outstanding Humanitarian Service Award by the American Academy. Professor Ferris is also Professor Emeritus at the University of Oklahoma. And then uh, it's an honor to have you here, Dr. Ferris. How's it going? Great. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. All right. I'll call you Brad, if you don't mind, to make it easier like, as we go along. That would be great. That would be great. Uh, Brad, there's so much to talk about, to accomplish so much, you know, like, I mean, again, great honor to have you here, but uh, why don't we start with the man before we go into like all the things you've done. So tell us a bit about your training and, and how did you get where you are today? Sure. Well, I went uh, to University of Oklahoma undergrad and uh, also graduated medical school from the University of Oklahoma. And um, after medical school, I was very intrigued by the combination of neurology and ophthalmology, how neurologic disease could really affect vision and how trauma affects vision and very complex and interesting. So I initiated two years of neurology residency followed by three years of ophthalmology residency. And then went down to the uh, University of Miami Baskin Palmer Institute for a, a year of neuro-ophthalmology fellowship. In 1986, I returned to the University of Oklahoma and Dean McGee Eye Institute as a neuro-ophthalmologist um, in uh, a university-based practice. And since that time, have worked with medical students, residents, and neuro-ophthalmology fellows uh, in, in teaching and, and educating about neuro-ophthalmology and basically patient encounters and, and intriguing diseases. And um, uh, did that for a, quite a period of time. Um, and then um, ultimately my wife and I have had three sons and we've raised those sons and they're out of the house. And um, uh, just from a professional standpoint, um, we'll get into all of my other work internationally, but ultimately in 2019, uh, I pulled back from daily uh, clinic and surgery and uh, just uh, went to education, teaching, and, and mission work. And how was it to return to the University of Oklahoma as staff after you know, like done all your training there must have been special. Yeah, it was a, it was, it was a, a great need. I mean, the, the field of neuro-ophthalmology, and I know that's really not ultimately the purpose of what we're talking about today, but the field of neuro-ophthalmology um, was challenging. And really there weren't many neuro-ophthalmologists in, in the United States, let alone in the Southwest or in, in Oklahoma. So I, I saw that there was a significant need uh, for that type of, of training. And so that's uh, one of the reasons that, that I decided to return to Oklahoma instead of other opportunities that I might've had. Um, and it was great. It was, uh, I already knew the system and, and I knew lots of people here. And so it was kind of easy to integrate and get, get started in that field of, of neuroophthalmology. Yeah. And, and, and you're right, right. In neuroophthalmology, it's not one of those uh, ophthalmology subspecialties. that are the, the most popular ones, I guess, right? 
No, it was quite rare back then. I think back then it, it, it was a little intimidating. Yeah, for, it, uh, that's how I would put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there were some young medical students and, and ophthalmology and neurology residents who thought, oh, I can't do that. And uh, the answer is, oh, yes, you can. It's, it's, it's awesome. And, and I, I pursued a surgical uh, neuro-ophthalmology practice. So uh, it wasn't enough for me to diagnose um, problems with vision. I, I wanted to do something about it. And so uh, I became a surgical neuro-ophthalmologist. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, let's dive into the topic that I really want to talk about, which is your work outside U.S. And uh, uh, you, you've, you've done a lot of work in a few countries, but mostly China. So, like, how, how, how did it all start? Like, what was your main motivation, like, to, to just get out there and, and, and do all the things you've done? Well, I, I think the background that we just talked about kind of sets me up, and it, it's kind of comical because I was so busy uh, in my academic practice and teaching and training and, and, and being challenged by such difficult uh, neuroophthalmology medical cases, I was not in the least bit interested in doing, uh, leaving that practice and going and doing medical mission work. It, it, was, it was not something I, I thought I had time for. I thought I was doing enough. And um, interestingly, uh, around uh, the year 2000, um, a um, non-government organization called Heart to Heart International, uh, who had their international offices based in Oklahoma City, had heard about me for whatever reason and approached me and said, hey, we, we're doing work in Southwest China. And there's a lot of problems um, with uh, untreatable or treatable blindness that, that is not being tapped and, and they really needed help. And they wondered if I would be interested in going to China and, and trying to help out that uh, problem. And, and I said, look, I, I'm not a medical missionary. I've never done that kind of work. I don't have a, um, uh, a master's in public health and, and I just don't have time for it. And uh, they were very polite and left. And then a week later, they called and said, can we talk to you again? And I was courteous and said, sure. After three lunches and three no's, <laughs> they finally said, can you please just come and look? And I said, look, I I'll agree to help you long distance. We'll do telemedicine. We can do all sorts of interesting technological things. Can I just help you there? And they said, no, you need to see it. And so I hopped on a plane and went with the team uh, in the spring of 2001 and went to Chengdu and um, was a guest of the Sichuan uh, People's uh, Provincial Hospital, SPPH there, a, kind of a state-run hospital instead of a federal hospital. And I was absolutely overwhelmed by the need. It, it wasn't only uh, the treatable blindness that was overwhelming and backed up in that province. That province is a, is, is a, at that time was 88 million people. Um, but it was the training. I was a guest of the educational program there, the, the Department of Ophthalmology there, and their residents um, who were being trained in ophthalmology were not allowed to enter the operating room. And it would take up to 10 years to be given permission to learn how to do the basic core surgery that needed to be done for, for global blindness. And that's cataract surgery. And, and, why, and why was that? Why would they hold them back so long? That's a great question. And I asked the same question and it took a while to figure out 
that it was a bottleneck. The professors and, and, and those who older ophthalmologists who knew the surgery and did the surgery did not want the competition. And um, it was a struggle. And, and they simply weren't eager to train the young doctors um, in that type of surgery. And so there was a bottleneck of trying to get in to do surgery and learn and get out and do the work. And um, I had a, I have a wonderful colleague, Dr. Lloyd Hildebrand, and uh, ultimately had Lloyd uh, help me assess locally what was the problem in Szechuan province and how do we assess it and where are the numbers? And we finally digging, 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 realized that there were about 30,000 cataract surgeries being done per year in the province of Szechuan province and over a million people with blinding cataracts waiting to be seen or be taken mm -hmm. care of. And, and as you can imagine, the numbers just wouldn't add up. They were never going to get caught up. Yeah. And it doesn't seem that the fear of the competition is warranted, right? Because they... exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so, you know, you, Yes, uh, China has their issues in, in regards to government, but there's no question it was a very capitalist uh, approach to eye care. And, uh, and so my, my job and, and what I was pulled into was, was twofold. One, um, primarily education. We need to change the educational system and, and try to show the Chinese um, professors that yes, these young doctors, they're bright, they're skilled. You need to let them do the work and get them introduced to surgery. And so we worked hard on educating residents, educating faculty and staff and educating leadership in the hospitals to allow that to, to start happening. That was number one. Number two was trying to provide uh, an approach to, to serving the underserved. Uh, in that region. Many had government insurance, some didn't, uh, very little of them, um, many of them were in rural areas. We would go out to, for three or four hour bus rides into the mountains and encounter what they call very small villages. Well, a small village in China is a population of a million or more. <laughs> and they would just stream off these mountain trails and come down. And, and when we would set up um, screening eye clinics for, and the, the goal there was to help the local doctors utilize them, lift them up, give them honor, and try to show them how to rapidly screen these patients with treatable blindness and then get them taken care of with follow-up care. And so a lot of public health basic issues that needed to be taught to the local Chinese hospitals and education. And so that was the draw, that was the appeal. And and I came back uh, to the University of Oklahoma, Dean McGee Institute, and I told my chairman at the time, David Park, I said, David, we have a real opportunity here not only to make a difference in the opposite side of the world, but we have an opportunity for our residents, our medical students, our faculty to learn about what is going on and, and, and treatable blindness in other parts of the world and to stimulate uh, our residents and our young doctors uh, to, to want to make a difference in other parts of the world, not just uh, locally. And so that was the beginning of what we started doing. And it is, it, it, like, it's interesting because it, it seemed that you had like a, uh, your main challenge there was a little bit different than, than usual. 
humanitarian missions, right? Because usually the need is there always, but like, I mean, usually there's a, there's also like a will of, of the local people, like, I mean, to welcome help, right? But in, in that case, it almost seems that like your first challenge was to change the mindset of people, you know, like, I mean, to accept help. Yeah, that's true. And, and, you know, I think the chairman of ophthalmology at that time in Chengdu, he, he told me, he said, look, everything you're saying is great. And we agree with, with what you're saying, but we have others who have come and, and try to teach them. They left and they never came back. They said, we don't want to deal with you if that's going to be what you do. Mm -hmm. And that, that taught me that I don't want to just go and do 500 cataracts in a location and leave and go do something else. That makes me feel good, mm -hmm. but I don't know that it really helps the system. And so we made a commitment at that time to stay with that program and that educational center and that location in China long-term and to build relationships and trust. And I think over time, that's what happened. We were able to build enough trust to where they gradually started changing their education system because they, they listened. And sometimes they would say, look, there's nothing we can do about this doctor. You know, and I, and I would, tell them, look, you, you've got to make a move. And, and if you can't get rid of that doctor, then create three or four more who do want to train and teach. And, and so eventually the program changed and we took it from a 10-year wait for an ophthalmology resident to a three to four wait, which is just about similar in the United States. United States, we get our first year residents introduced in the operating room in their first year, but really in their second and third years when they learn uh, complicated uh, surgery and how to make a difference for treatable blindness. And, and, and now in China, it was certainly in that region is three to four years, which is a wonderful improvement. And the numbers are increasing as far as surgeons capable of doing the surgery. And, and how is the relationship that has been uh, established between the, the university in China and, and the Dean McGee Institute? Is it part of the training program of your residents here like to go there and, and do some work as well? Uh, great question. So, um, yes. And so, in fact, uh, since that time, we take a team every year uh, of faculty, residents, and med students, and we created a commitment to our senior ophthalmology residents that um, when they hit their senior year, uh, they will, we will take them, pay for them to go with us on, with our team to China every year and to, to allow them to, that they teach when they're over there, they teach surgery, they, and, and they learn, uh, we learn a lot from the extremely skilled Chinese surgeons. They have so much to teach us and we have so much yet to teach them. So it's something that our residents look forward to. And when we have applicants every year to our uh, residency program, that's one thing that they really look forward to. And that's why they come to the University of Oklahoma and Dean McGee is because they know they're going to get exposed to international ophthalmology and, and they realize the value and importance of that. And uh, uh, in 2011, we added to that our experience in Africa. And I'm happy to share that with you. Uh, yeah, we would, as, I would ask that very soon. So let's, let's roll into that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, uh, do you want me to go ahead and share that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, uh, you're going to get to that, but like, it, was it a similar 
uh, I mean, I always like to know the beginnings, you know, like, so like that new program started pretty much the same way as the one in China or was it? Well, uh, good question. And, and it, it actually is the totally opposite problem. So in China, we, we, we developed that relationship. We built our um, identity and trust in Sichuan province. And uh, I used to joke to my um, chairman at Dean McGee that uh, Lloyd Hildebrand and I both joked that we would say, you know, more people in the world know about Dean McGee Institute because of a billion people in China than in, than in the United States, <laughs> because there's so many people there. But we developed that relationship. And then in 2011, uh, the same organization, the NGO that, that originally introduced us uh, into China, came to us and said, hey, we have uh, contacts in, in Southern Africa, and we've seen what you've done in China. Could you help us in Africa? There's, a, there's serious problems there. And, and at that time in 2011, um, we were introduced to Swaziland. Um, there was one main ophthalmologist there. His name is Dr. Jonathan Pons. And I happened to have known him through uh, other meetings and uh, the problem in Swaziland at that time was that uh, HIV was devastating and wiping out a whole generation of, of young men and women. And, and by the time we got to Swaziland, 40% of, of women uh, of childbearing age were HIV positive. And that's a whole different uh, ball game of eye disease and immune compromised uh, patients developing problems that, that we would see in, in China, totally different problem. And there was no medical school, there was no educational process that we could create uh, a, an educational program and, and get more surgeons or more uh, eye doctors into Swaziland, they just weren't there. So the problem in Swaziland was trying to come alongside the local ophthalmologist and, and support him and increase his ability to um, address uh, subspecialty needs such as corneal disease that we see a lot of problems in with HIV patients or immune compromise, retinal diseases. And so Dean McGee had all these subspecialists that could make a huge difference in subspecialty care in Africa. And so we started taking uh, a team to, to China every year, and we started taking a team to Africa every year. So we do two trips a year and um, trying to make a difference in uh, rural um, Swaziland, rural South, Af South Africa, in, in patients who had many, many causes of treat, truly treatable blindness, not just cataracts, not just myopia that you see in, in, in Southeast Asia, but, but really infectious disease, uh, corneal disease, um, lots of issues that, that we had an opportunity to make a difference in. Yeah, very interesting. And I've, I've read also that in China, you expanded on that relationship that you have with local the local ophthalmological community, uh, there's there's a, a meeting right that you that you got involved in, or as was was it your team that started that meeting in China? Yeah, yes, and, and we've also done it in, in in Africa, but in in China, uh, we thought you know it would be great as we first started working there because we were an academic institution and because we were trying trying to make a diff difference 
in medical mission work that was university and educational based instead of necessarily faith based, um, we thought it would be good to not just try to one-on-one teach local faculty and residents, but to create a regional um, conference that was um, an academic exchange conference wherein we could go and, and speak to many, many eye doctors. And I think our, and so it was an international conference of ophthalmology that we started and um, in Chengdu. And I think the first meeting, there were 30 or 40 doctors uh, locally around Chengdu. And the most recent meeting in, uh, in 2019 was um, over 500. And so the, 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 the meeting slowly grew every year and more and more ophthalmologists from all over the country of China uh, came and it became a true international academic exchange uh, between American ophthalmologists and Chinese ophthalmologists, um, researchers and clinical uh, surgeons. It was wonderful. And I guess by now you have other ophthalmologists going there as well, not only people from the Dean McGee Institute, is that right? Absolutely. We, we have an open invitation, always have had to other colleagues that we have across the country to come and join us. And uh, early on, we've had several uh, ophthalmologists from um, California who joined us, who were uh, Chinese American and absolutely wanted to make a difference in what they call mainland, mainland China. They were from Taiwan and they wanted to make a difference in their mother country. And so um, we've, we've utilized that, Dr. Paul Chen and Dr. Yun Lu from uh, the San Francisco area. And they're amazing educators and have a, have a true love for the people as we have developed. I didn't understand the culture. And as I began to understand the culture, I fell in love uh, with the people there. Uh, and the same in Africa. The more you work there and the more you develop relationships in the same location over and over again, uh, the more you fall in love with the culture, it's amazing. And Brad, so we it's it's uh, it's known, right? Like there are places in the world that that there is like a big unmet need, you know, in developing countries and you know emerging countries and or places that are not so poor, but they're so vast and there's so many people that you know, like I mean, the need is still there. Uh, but what it's usually not so obvious is the unmet need in our own backyard, right? And then. Uh, I, I also know you've done some work with the unprivileged, like in, in your own town. And yes. Would you, so can we jump into that and like, sure. like put things into perspective? So what exactly was, was the need and how did that compare with the other places where you've done uh, this kind of uh, charitable work? Well, it's, it's exciting and it's fun to go into the international field and, and try to assess the problem, understand the need, uh, try to collect resources, and, and then start making a difference that, that is not just a one-time deal, but, but a long-term difference to the country. And my residents, my medical students, my faculty love doing that. But you know what? That's just a, you know, maybe two or three weeks, four weeks out of the year. The rest of the year, I, I didn't want things just to fall and, and do nothing. I wanted our residents to be um, impact-minded to where they make a difference in the world, not only internationally, but, but back home. We have the same needs here as, as there are internationally. It's just, you say, well, we've got great medical care here in the United States. Yes, 
but we also have a large homeless population. We also have people who, who are coming to the U.S. daily who don't have insurance and don't have social security numbers, and, and therefore they can't be documented, and therefore they don't have any coverage, they don't have money. And, and so I, I wanted to try to make a difference. And initially we created um, a clinic called the Ministries of Jesus. It was a faith-based clinic, but it was public health-minded in order to make a difference in people who have no documentation and no insurance. And that was the only qualification to come in and get healthcare. And we developed an eye clinic there, um, I think around the year 2000 as well. And, and I would have my residents and medical students come with me and, and work locally to get in the habit of giving back and making a difference in the community. Um, eventually, we developed a small eye clinic that the residents now um, regulate and, and operate uh, in a little uh, uh, location close to their residency program where they can go and they can make a difference in, in in diabetic retinopathy screening and, and patients who, who have high risk needs with diabetes and hypertension, but have no way of being seen and have no measure. And so the goal there is to try to instill in these young doctors, the fact that there's a need here at home, as well as a need overseas. And the approach is identical. You try to identify the need you try to uh, round up resources that are available to you and you make it known that you're available to make a difference and, and you recruit people to work with that. And so it's the same principle and it's just as exciting and just as rewarding. And talking about resources, like those internal uh, initiatives are internally funded by the McGee Institute and people work on a volunteer basis or is there any sort of sponsor? So there are there are grants that we pursue, and and there are there is available money. You you just have to ask. Mm -hmm. You have to learn and look. And yes, it's on a volunteer basis. Um, and so uh, you know, D. McGee Institute itself takes care of a large population of underserved, but they have to be documented, and and that's money that they set aside every year. Uh, that's a financial assistance program that makes a huge difference in our community. But there's still a significant percentage of population that's undocumented. And so the resources available are limited. But you know what? It doesn't take much to screen and determine what the problem might be uh, to restore vision. And many times it's just a refraction or a reassurance. Uh, but when it does come to a need for surgery or subspecialty care, um, we have volunteers who fulfill that need. Very cool, Brad. Uh, and you, I mean, you, you're at a point in your career that you've accomplished so much. And uh, I, I understand that what, what drives us, you know, in our careers, like my change over the years. And like when we're young, we want to learn. And then we're a bit established. We want to, you know, like, can we reach a point where we are like financially stable? And then, you know, like we want to leave a legacy. So it changes and people driven by different motives. So at, at this point right now, at your career, what is your main drive? Like, I mean, to keep on going? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, part of you says, well, you, you know, you're near 70, you've, you've, you've put in 40 years of hard work. Um, let's take a break and, and just chill. And, and, and certainly your body tells you that, <laughs> <laughs> but, but your heart and your mind says, you know what? 
I still have a desire to make a difference. And, and so I enjoy still teaching. I have a, we have a, what's called a global ophthalmology fellowship program at Dean McGee. And I still uh, manage that and mentor uh, a young uh, doctor who's completed ophthalmology residency. And then every year we get, we provide the fellowship where they spend six months here in the United States uh, typically right here in the Oklahoma city area uh, around Dean McGee working on urban and suburban needs of the underserved. The other six months they work overseas working in China and Africa with our partners. And, and that's proven to be a very popular fellowship. And so I still um, uh, manage that. And just recently um um, I was approached by uh, the Indian Health Service of a particular Indian tribe that is really struggling here in Oklahoma to provide uh, eye care uh, to their high-risk patients. They're, you know, they're over 60% population of diabetes and hypertension, and they're not getting seen, and they're not getting screened. And, and so I was recently asked, you know, can I help in, in that regard? And so I'm excited to jump in and and try to help them organize and, and develop an approach to, to taking care of the underserved in that particular tribe. So no matter how hard I try to back off and chill on a beach, these, the, I call them opportunities. These, these opportunities just kind of keep happening. And, and uh, from my personal faith standpoint, I feel called to make a difference still at this age. And so I'm enjoying it. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you do for, from what I know about you, like I, I think you know, doing what you're doing now would bring a, you yourself a lot more happiness than just laying down on the beach, you know, <laughs> sipping margaritas. <laughs> well, that's relative. <laughs> Depends on the time of day, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> I could still do both, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a little time for both, probably. <laughs> uh, so. Brad, thank you very much. You know, I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, uh, again, thank you very much for giving a little bit of it to, to us and sharing what you've done. It's an honor like you meant to share with someone like you. Uh, I hope you enjoy your call and uh, I'm sure our audience will uh, enjoy as well. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored to be able to share a little bit. And, and as I say, if, if, if you're not having fun doing what you're doing, then you're not doing the right thing. And so uh, thank you very much. That's a great takeaway. So we're going to leave it at that. Thank you, Brett. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. And that concludes today's episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening.